Hi, this is Martin Dugard, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. Is this one of my favorite authors? <laughs> you're very kind. How you doing, man? Well, I'm glad we're finally doing this, even though you forgot about me. I was excited all day to do this interview, and I found out you forgot all about me. You know, the funny thing is, I'm sitting there working on a new book, and I was so lost in uh, writing, and all of a sudden I saw your, your message. I like, oh, fuck, okay, we got to. So here I am. I'm a... So I got lost in the word, but here I am. Nice, awesome. to, talk to, nice to talk to you. You too, my friend. Well, first of all, congratulations on your son graduating uh, last weekend. Is he following in his father's footsteps in writing? No, no, he's uh he's doing video games. He's a uh, his his uh his re is in um, video game design. So he's he's my retirement plan. So Martin, here we go. Last January, I'm a big traveler. I was in London. I'm walking around the British Museum, and there was a small section about Captain James Cook. And obviously, I've heard of, of Captain Cook. I knew about the Cook Islands. So I'm like, oh, why not read a book out on him? I quickly go to the Goodreads app, and the first book that popped up was Further Than Any Man by you. I put the book in my queue. Later on, I realized, holy crap, I read a ton of books by you. I took a shot in the dark, threw you an email, immediately you wrote back. So this is for me beyond cool. I have on astronauts, athletes, authors, celebrities, but anytime I interview like a guy I love when they write, it's like really special, man. So I appreciate you calling in. Uh, it's really cool. Authors don't get a lot of love like this, so it's nice to be able to talk about what I do. And you know, it's, it's funny you said that because I'm a big sports guy and I'm a big reader. I try to read a book a week, 52 books in 52 weeks. And every author I hit up, they come on. I'm like, oh my God, you're really coming on? And they're like, yeah, authors really don't get hit up to hang out and drink beer and do podcasts. So I'm glad you came on. No, no, it's, and I'm really glad to be here. I, and I apologize again for being late. No worries. Hey, what was it about James Cook that intrigued you to even write the book? Um, you know what happened was I, in 19, I think 1999, 1998, I was writing a book about um, the Sydney to Hobart sailing debacle in off the coast of Australia where a number of sailors lost their lives in this horrific storm. And when I went to Australia to interview these sailors who'd been through it, um, almost to a man, they talked about their great respect for uh, the ocean off the coast of Australia, but more specifically, a guy like Captain James Cook, and they mentioned him by name, who really, you know, knew how to sail those waters in, in a much, you know, in a, in, in a ship that bore nothing, no resemblance to the modern blue water boat. And I've always been a history guy, and I wanted to make the leap from writing mostly about sports and endurance sports to writing about history. And so I wrote about Cook. And I see a trend in your writing, and we're going to get to that. It seems like you like to travel wherever you're going to go research a book because the research you did on Cook was phenomenal. You went to Hawaii. You were all over where he grew up in England. Is that a big part of your thing, traveling and slash writing a book? I want to say no, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the truth. So, uh, for instance, like when I when – I, the next book was about Stanley Livingston in Africa, and really the only reason – I picked them was because I wanted to see a lion in the wild. And so in writing about these guys who, who walked across Africa, I got the chance myself to go to Africa and see a lion in the wild. When I wrote about Columbus, I'd really never spent time in the Caribbean, so I wanted to go to the Caribbean and sp spend some time. So, you know, yeah, it kind of feeds on itself, and it works out. It's, uh, it's a good way to feed the travel Jones. I know this is like a generic, hacky question, but I always have – a certain admiration for all different authors. When did the writing bug get you? And was it always author slash writer or bust for you? Was that it for you? No, not really. When I was six, um, I was one of those kids who 
did sports and read books all the time. And I wanted, at six years old, I went to my mom and I said, um, Mom, I want to be a writer. And she said, don't be silly. Writers don't make any money. <laughs> and so, so I, I put it out of my head, you know, and, and it wasn't until I had graduated college, I was married, um, I had a regular corporate marketing job that I just hated, that just for fun, I began writing on the side and doing little magazine pieces. And I worked my way up from very small running and triathlon publications all the way up to the Sports Illustrators and the Esquires. And um, one day out of the blue, I got a call from Mark Burnett, you know, who's the, we all know now was on TV with a, this Survivor and The Apprentice, but back then he didn't have two pennies to rub together. But he called me and said he was taking a team of Navy SEALs to Madagascar to compete in an adventure race. And he wanted to know if I would leave my job for three weeks to go cover this race and write about them. Um, and I, I said yes. My wife, who was a saint, uh, agreed to let me go um, when I had a great time. Three weeks in Madagascar. You know, the temperature was 135 degrees some days, and there was crocodiles in the rivers. <laughs> I couldn't have been happier. And then uh, I got fired my first day back. And uh, instead of, you know, taking it hard, I, I, I could not have been more thrilled. So that was the start of my writing career, February 24th, 1995. Well, so a two-part question. One, how did he find you? Obviously, you're writing for Sports Illustrated and stuff. So how do you, why did he pick you? I have no idea. And, you know, we've been friends to this day, and he still really can't explain it to me. But all I know is that um, it changed my life. It's a call you don't get very often. Wow. And you came, you got fired because you came back from that long, extended vacation? Is that why you were fired? Yeah. You know, they weren't too fond of me. I had a pretty – I, I kind of climbed my way up the corporate ladder well enough that – when I left, they missed me. So, <laughs> uh, and I and they could clearly see that you know writing was where I wanted to go, and um, so they they just let me go, and it's uh, it's worked out. Where did that confidence come from, knowing you got fired, but instead of maybe staying in the same field that you were, like where did that confidence come from that you like, okay, I'm going to go write, that's it. Um, you know, it's it was more like desperation because I had I got that corporate job. And within two weeks of getting, you know, you, when you go through college and you go through life, you think there's a progression. You know, you, you think you're going to go through high school, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a job, and then you're going to get married and have kids. And you're going to do that for the rest of your lives. And there's supposed to be some sort of fulfillment. In two weeks into the corporate world, I kept looking around and all these people who, who just all they talked about was retirement. And they were 40 years away from retirement. And all they talked about is how they're going to start living their lives when they retired. And I thought, man, I can't wait that long, you know, and I, and I began wondering, you know, is this all there is? Is this as good as it gets? And when I began writing just for fun, you know, I wasn't making very much money as a writer. But once I started doing it, um, I realized that that was what I needed to do. And I, I to this day, I say it's the only thing I can really do um, professionally because, I mean, I'm just I am a writer. It's just I, I kind of suck at everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I have like little notes on you. The book you're talking about, was that Survivor of the Ultimate Game or Surviving the Toughest Race on Earth? Uh, that was Surviving the Toughest Race on Earth. Um, so what happened with, with Survivor of the Ultimate Game, Mark, so the first time Mark called me was 1993 to go to Madagascar. The second time he called me was 2000, where he'd kind of gotten a little bit more famous. And he called me, I think, late March, and they were supposed to start short, start shooting the first Survivor, I think like March 13th or 14th. And he called me and they needed someone to write the book about the show, the companion book. And I was actually finishing the Captain Cook book at the time. And I finished it on the island. But he he called and said, I'm doing this new TV show. It's about 
we're going to put these castaways on this island and everyone, someone's going to get voted out. It's like Lord of the Flies. And I said, Mark, that is the stupidest idea for TV. <laughs> and I, I said, but I said, here's the deal. If you get me a plane ticket, if you can get me uh, a check with, within the next 48 hours, I'm your guy. And sure enough, plane ticket and check showed up. Um, I went to live on Pulo Tika off the coast of Borneo for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, it was like an adult summer camp. You know, we I was barefoot the whole time and there were, you know, pythons and all sorts of other snakes in the jungle. And it was a great time. And like I said, I finished Captain Cook on that island. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And now during survival, you like just kind of watching it live or were you like secluded somewhere else? You know, they do it differently now, but back then we were, the island was shaped like a boomerang. It was about a mile wide and about three miles long. So we were on kind of the inside of the boomerang and we, on our side of the island, we had, we, we had like production bays. We had a big open air workstation where I wrote every day. We had ESPN, you know, by satellite. We had all this stuff. Um, if you walked a mile through the jungle where the castaways were, um, they had nothing. And so we would, me and Jeff Probst would walk over there um, like with a with a Coke and some Skittles in their hand and these people were starving <laughs> and they had bug bites all over them and they stunk. And uh, we weren't, you know, intentionally taunting them, but they looked at, our, you know, the can of Coke and, a, and some Skittles as if we were, you know, it, you know, as if it was a steak dinner. So I want to jump to this, the travel aspect, because I'm an obsessive traveler. I'm actually trying to visit every single country in the world. That's like my ultimate life goal. I think I'm at 79 or something. What or where haven't you been yet that you're dying to go to? I've been to India, and I'd like to go to the Asian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my dad fought in Vietnam. I'd like to go to Vietnam as well. But I've, I've been throughout Europe. I've been throughout Africa, um, several places in Asia. You know, I've done um, Australia, New Zealand, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'd really like to see what India is like. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of British history and I know, you know, how all of that unfolded. I'd like to see it more for myself. It would be fun though to also do the, the walk into Everest. I've got mm-hmm. no, no desire to climb Everest, but I would like to see that, that the base walk, camp, that base camp, the walk into base camp, which is mm-hmm. just a hellish walk. Yeah. Is that the one that's like a, like eight days to walk through for, is that from the Kathmandu when you go, you take the yeah. little plane over there and walk up? Yeah. And it's um, it's not it's not a, an easy walk. I mean, it's it's a it's not like a a little pampered trek. It's a pretty arduous hike. The other book that jumped out at me when I went to your website, and I didn't read this yet, is to be a runner. That's a huge passion of yours. You coach running also too, right? I do. Yeah. So um, I was lucky enough. Um, I've got three boys, and when my oldest, I, and I coached them all in little league, and you know, it, it kind of that's when, as a grown man, you're supposed to kind of stop coaching your kids and kind of go back and do your day job. But because I have an unusual day job, when my, my son transferred his freshman year of high school to a new local high school, and I mentioned that I had run competitively in high school and the NCAA level in college, and if their cross-country coach wanted any help, that I would be happy to help, they said, we don't have a coach. Do you want to be the coach? And so uh, next Monday will be the 24th will be uh, the start of my 15th year as the head coach there. And so I write in the morning, I coach in the afternoon, and I couldn't be happier. Going back to writing, do you write every single day? Except Sunday. I, I tend to take Sundays off just to kind of recharge my batteries and I sleep in a little bit. But, yeah, um, I get up at about mm, 6.45, 7 o'clock, you know, coffee, read the LA Times um, in my office, which is 
in my garage uh, by eight o'clock and I write from about eight till two and then I go coach. Tell me about the book to be a runner because I know in the on Amazon it says like it talks about mountain running, running with the bulls, a 5k to improve yourself. What exactly is the book about? Um, you know what happened was, I mean, so I've, I've kind of gone through every stage as a runner. I mean, I, I ran my first mile when I was six. I, like I said, I competed in high school and college. After college, um, I wasn't gifted enough to go the Olympic route. So I went into triathlons and I ran marathons. Then I did these adventure races like in Surviving the Toughest Race on Earth. Um, you know, I've taken breaks throughout my life. You know, I take a couple of years off here and there. Um, and then, then I began coaching. So I've, I've known that full gamut of being uh, a runner. And in 2009, I was ghostwriting a biography for uh, a very lonely billionaire who, thanks to NDAs, I can't say his name, but uh, <laughs> he, we would fly over. He, he had a Gulfstream, so we flew all over the world. And he would go off to do his, his business stuff, and, and we'd do the interviews late at night. But that left me a full day to do whatever I wanted to do. And I was so bored, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be kind of fun to write a bunch of running essays just to kind of put my experiences down on paper for my kids? And that's what I did. Within in 30 days, I wrote 30 essays, and I polished them up, and some of them I threw away, some of them I kept. And I literally wrote the whole book um, during when I was supposed to be writing this other guy's book. And I sent the whole uh, – I printed the whole manuscript out, sent it to my agent um, with whom I had a – an agreement that we would never, ever, ever publish a running book because they don't sell. And uh, he liked it enough, though, to uh, find a publisher. I, I think it started off with Rodale, and now it's over at uh, – I just came out again. I should know the name of the publisher. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're going to hate me. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's just – you know, it's it's not one of those books. It's not a how-to book. It's not how to run a 5K, and it's not this deep – you know, ethereal re reflection on, um, you know, about the spiritual aspect of running. It's just some of my thoughts on what it's like to run. You know, I mean, some of my experiences. You know, I've run with the bulls in Pamplona. Um, I've I've run on every continent except Antarctica. I mean, I've I've had a number of adventures. I've run run through jungles. I've run up mountains. You know, in in every kind of climate. So it's it's about that. It's what it's like to be a runner and and how it changes your life. Well, you answered my next question because you mentioned in an article that it was so personal to you. And actually, you, you just said why. But you also said that uh, some reviewers loved it and some slammed it. What was the negativity on the book? You know, the thing is, I first I used to back down from it, but I'm not, not going to back down from it anymore. A lot of people said it was too elitist. And I know where that comes from because running is, has become such an everyman sport now. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that way when I first started running as a kid You know, back in the mid-60s. Uh, I'm 58 now. Um, there, nobody was a runner. I mean, there was there was no running boom. There was no Frank Shorter gold medal in 1972 Olympics, and um, and then I you know then I went the competitive route. But now, running is such a personal experience for people. And a lot of people don't ever want to really be competitive. They just want to go out there and run. So when you read a book about, and I admit in the book that there are several times in my life that I've I've gained 20 or 30 pounds, but I've stopped running. So it's not like I'm completely acting like a, some, kind of, some kind of, you know, major athlete. But at the same time, I think when you put that competitive vibe into a book like that, a lot of people react to it because they would rather just kind of pretend that they don't have a competitive bone in their body. When in fact, anytime you run, you're making the choice not to be mediocre. You're making the choice to be a better version of yourself. 
And in every way, people compete. I don't care who you are, you compete. Even if you're trying to be the first one in the line at the bank, you're competing. And so anyway, so that's what the slam is. Some people didn't like it because it was a little bit too elitist. And at first it kind of stung me, but now I think, you know what? It is what it is. Were you nervous about writing a book like that because you have so many famous books, always top five, top ten on every list? Were you nervous of writing a book with a small audience? Most people don't read running books. Does that make you nervous, like taking a shot like that? You know, I've got this – yeah, I mean it's not like um, it's not like I'm Springsteen and I can, I can make a small little album and come back <laughs> you know, and, and still have an enormous fan base. So every time you write something, you take a risk that – it might be the last book you ever publish. But um, with this one, I kind of felt like I had to. I really, I felt like I didn't want to be on my deathbed wishing I'd written this specific book. And it meant a lot to me, and I'm glad I wrote it. And um, I'm glad, you know, when they did the the paperback version that just came out a couple months ago, they gave me the chance to go back in and update it and write some new essays, which was enormously fun, but I will admit that as much as I enjoy the book and as much as I'm proud of it, um, I wrote the book 10 years ago. So it's kind of weird to see how much I've grown in the last 10 years and how much different I am now than I was then and also how much how same I am. And at some point when you write in the first person like that, you just get tired of reading about yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was kind of nice to finish that, write these new essays, put, you know, put an end to it, and at the same time, um, go back to writing history, which which engages me enormously. One last thing about running. What is it that you love so much about uh, it? For me, it's it's solitude. I mean, I've like I said, I've gone through the competitive phase. I've gone through the the phase where I'd be, you know, uh, running just a pair of shorts and bare chested with ten other guys all clipping along at, you know, five twenty per mile and feeling pretty cool about it. Uh, you know, I would never dream of taking my shirt off now when I go for a run, you know, in city streets. So it's, I just like to be alone. I live 500 meters from a trailhead. I, I drop down on the trail. I, you know, if I'm in the middle of my running day and I need, I mean, my writing day and I need a little bit of uh, breath for fresh air, just to go out for 30 minutes on the trails and, and be by myself and, and think my thoughts and get my shit together. It's, it's a good feeling. Obviously, your name is huge, partly because of the Killing series. I'm talking about Killing Lincoln, Kennedy, uh, Jesus, Patton, Reagan, uh, The Rising Sun, the SS. I think I hit them all. How did you get linked up with Bill O'Reilly to do those Killing series? It was interesting. So we have the same agent, um, or we did at one time. And um, I was up in Mammoth Lakes, which is a, a mountain community here in California. And my cross-country team was having a... Um, a summer training camp at high altitude, it was like 9,000 feet. And my agent called and said, um, I've got a client who would like to meet you to discuss writing history books. Can you make it to New York City to talk with them? So, uh, sure. I, you know, he didn't tell me who it was. So I, I literally drove through the night to the Reno airport, got on a plane, met Bill for lunch. Um, you know, he's a very 6'3", 6'4", he's a very tall, imposing guy, looks you right in the eye. Um, and we talked for about an hour and a half, and I got the gig. And at the time, you look back, you know, 18 million copies of the books have been sold. But at the time, his publisher didn't believe that he, people would buy his history books. So it was a big, um, big experiment. And so I flew back to my team's camp the next day, and I just didn't really know where all this was going to go. I thought it would be a nice little one-off, and then we, I could get back to doing my thing. He could get back to doing his political stuff. And Killing Lincoln was the first book, 
and it just took off. And a month after it came out, Bill called me up and said, what do you think about Killing Kennedy? And it's been like that with every book. He, he comes up with an idea, he calls me, and we go to it. It's a lot of fun. How, what's the process like writing one of these detailed historical killing books, not just by yourself, because by yourself it would be one thing, but now you're uh, like doing it with someone else. Is it a difficult process? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've written books. Uh, I did a book one time with James Patterson, you know, uh, The Murder of King Tut, which was mm-hmm. great. Jim was a super cool guy. Uh, I did the Survivor book with Mark Burnett, which was interesting because with with when you write with Jim Patterson, you send him chapters every three or four weeks, and he kind of comes back with his feedback. Writing with Mark is easy because I just do all the writing, and he puts his name on it. So that's super <laughs> easy. Um, with Bill, it's different. Bill is a very hands-on um, individual and he has a very really very very strong sense of story so what will happen is i will write a chapter i do the research i write the chapter the way that i would write the chapter um you know adding the research then i send it to bill bill we get on the phone bill reads the chapter out loud changes the chapter into his voice but also comes back and says we need can you research more research more here can we add this or he'll just say let's okay let's lose these three pages because they don't work at all. They slow everything down. So I never thought of myself as a collaborator, but when it, now that we've been doing this for a while, this, you know, we're, we're just about to start our 10th book. Um, it's such an easy process. You know, we're on the phone three or four times a week um, and we just get on the phone. We just get right to work. It's about a 45 minute conversation. And I, you know, I send him the stuff, he rewrites it in his voice and it works. It's going to sound silly to access, and obviously you're not going to Wikipedia, but what kind of research are you going? Because you're, you know, the Lincoln books, Kennedy, this is back in the day. How are you getting all this information on that? You know, it used to be like when I did the Stanley Livingston book, um, to get a lot of stuff, I used to have to, like, for instance, Stanley wrote for the New York Herald Tribune. So all of the, the newspapers at the time were put on microfilm and they were held in a large repository, the newspaper library, literally outside of London. And that was my, always my good excuse to tell my, li- my wife that I needed to go to London because I need to go to the newspaper library. And But now everything is digitized. And other than the travel aspect of it, where I'll, I'll go to places and I'll, I'll walk where Lincoln walked or I'll walk where Kennedy walked or I'll, I'll see the sites, you know, kind of sniff the air. But pretty much everything is online. And if you really dig and if you even almost every, uh, even the lowest level of research you can find somewhere, Sometimes I might have to fly someplace and go to an archive like with uh, with Killing England. I went to, I spent a lot of time in the parliamentary archives, which are just outside the House of Lords, um, which is cool because, you know, there was this one bound volume they gave me and page one was was the wedding um, order, order, order for the wedding for Elizabeth I, you know. So, and you can put your hands on stuff like that. It was super cool. But for the most part, I don't have any reason to leave my office. You can do almost everything online. And what you can't do online, you can very specifically know to go to those places. I mean, for the new killing book that I can't really discuss yet, it, it you know it takes place in the US and it that involved going to these these battlegrounds and in you know walking the battleground and knowing the order of battle and knowing where everything took place and just so I could I could write about it in a very specific fashion. I read that you guys only met uh, met like four or five times. Is that true? I think we're up to about eight or nine now. We might be up to 10, but um, it, it's funny. We text all the time. We, um, well, you know, 
he he called the other day when my son graduated from college to you know wish him a happy graduation but yeah we we don't get together that often it's it's very much a a very two 21st century uh write a book many disagreements with the way you want to write and research and the way he wants to do it or not really no and i've got it it's weird like i said i'm not a collaborative person and i'm a very strong-willed person but we see eye to eye on so much and i have to have to say this too at the end of the day Bill's name is the big name on the front of the book, and it has to sound like Bill. I write, my voice is very different from Bill's. And so if if he has a, he always has a very strong idea about how he wants the, the book to sound and how he wants it to read and how you know, how he wants it structured. And um, look at, you know, it's a it's it's a great experience to write with him. It's been a it's been a great um, a time being able, being able to really pour myself into these books without having to worry about you know, finding it, you know, what what's my next book going to be? Because I, I know what the next book is going to be. It's another killing book. So I get to indulge my passion for history and research. Um, so if Bill says, let's go left, I go left. If we go right, we go right. I don't, I don't really care. It's all about just getting the best possible book out there. So many times when I have an author on, I, you know, I, I read their book or I've read their book in the past and we talk about, you know, one or two of their books. You have so many I read, so we can't touch on all of them. Obviously, but I want to tell me one or two things that either stood out, shocked you, or fascinating you while researching any of these killing books. Um, well, Lincoln, you know, the Lincoln thing was was interesting just because I didn't know much about the that part of. I think that's one of the big things with all the books is that I get to do kind of a graduate level course in that section of history, so I find out so many things. Like with the SS book, I, you know, I couldn't imagine the level of atrocities that took place in the death camps. With Kennedy, I had no idea that a man could have that much sex in the White House. It was just boggled my mind. Um, with killing Jesus, you know, I, I, you know, we, we all we, we all kind of know the Gospels, you know, whether coming at it from the Old Testament or the New Testament. But to give the Gospels context to know how horrible the Romans were and how completely they controlled the world at the time, and you know, the the situation with in which Christ was born. Really, it was cool. And actually, the fact that he was even called Christ at the time, because Christ had nothing to do with this man named Jesus. You know, Christ was just means king, and it was a title given to him much later. So all these, these, these little things, these little factoids you pick up, and I come home, I mean, I come back from my office, I walk the 30 steps into the kitchen, and I would sit down at the dinner table and tell my family all the cool stuff I learned that day. Um, they, they could care less. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, they just let me geek out about the history stuff, and I, I love to go deep. I love to really go down the rabbit hole with the research, and it's fun to learn all these things. And then, you know, 95% of the stuff you learn, you can't use. And so, and, but, it's, but it's still there. You know, you've, it's, you've learned it, you, you, you get the context of it, and then you move on. How about the coolest piece of memorabilia, or I shouldn't say memorabilia, or historical maybe things you saw from researching that book? Because I know you do a lot of research. Did you see anything or get your hands on some historical thing like, holy crap, am I really touching this or looking at this? Sometimes it was more – well, like with the Stanley Livingston book, I was back at the um, the Royal Geographical Society in London recently, and they actually came out of their archives, and they had, they had Livingston's – the hat that he wore, the actual hat he wore, the, and they had his compass and his sextant. And an actual plumb bob he used. I was actually able to, I was able to you know hold them in my hands, um, which was super cool. But then, then there's other stuff too, like you know stuff I wasn't able to do, like the 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 spur that John Wilkes Booth was wearing when he jumped off the stage and they got caught in the bunting. That spur is on display at the U.S. Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis, Maryland, and it's 
is just in, like in this corner all by itself, and it's such an amazing part of history. And to actually look at it, and it's very small. I mean, he was not a big man, and to just to look at it, it blows your mind. But you know, the cool thing though too is that uh, Bill is a huge uh, memorabilia collector. So he, uh, I'm looking at my walls right now here in my office. He sent me a signed picture, um, you know, of uh, uh, what's his name, the Enola Gay pilot, uh, standing in front of the Enola Gay the day of the Hiroshima bombing. I've got a the original edition of the Harvard Crimson with the Kennedy assassinated headline, um, and I've got a signed uh, piece of uh, a signed letter by Buffalo Bill Cody. So little stuff like that kind of keeps the history geek alive. When you, you mentioned uh, writing the Book of Patterson, the murder of King Tut, um, I just got back from Egypt. Did you travel there also for the book? I did. Oh, you got some gig. I see exactly what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because we went to the, you know, the Arab Spring, uh, they kind of looted the Egyptology Museum in Cairo. So it's not what it was. And I, you know, when I started my research, I started at the British Museum in London and I had done very preliminary research and I made an appointment with one of their Egyptologists and she was very kind and she took my appointment. I started asking these questions and she was so she was very polite, but you could tell she was looking at me like, you're a moron. You know nothing about this. <laughs> and I, but, I, but I just kept asking her questions, and she kept giving me answers. And so by the time we finally got to Cairo, my wife came with me. And so we, we flew down to go to the Valley of the Kings. Did you get to go there? I did. Yeah. So you know what it's like. It's hot. You've got those flies everywhere. And so I knew a bunch of the tombs. So we went in a few tombs, and I knew them all. And the last one on the list was for us was the Tut tomb, but by this time it was like, it was noon, they, they, they were having their lunch break, and it was, you know, unbearably hot, there's flies everywhere, and all the tourists were kind of, there's like, you know, that awning where people stand to get out of the shade, and my wife was done with the Valley of Kings by that time, and she just wanted to go back to our room and get some air conditioning, and instead of waiting in line like everybody else to go into the tomb afterwards, she literally just walked up and bribed the guy guarding the tomb, and it, you know, you know the the value of the money there. I mean, we basically gave the guy about the equivalent of a dollar, and he let us into Tut's tomb all by ourselves. And it was super wow. cool. You know, and it, you know, they, they, I think they all thought we were VIPs instead of just a guy with an irate wife. <laughs> but you know, Tut Tut is back in the tomb, which is cool. We got to see Tut. We had the tomb all to ourselves, um, and then we left. But yeah, that was super cool. I'm just going through my little notes on you. Did you get arrested in Africa? Because all I have is – because we were supposed to do this a month ago, and it just says arrested Africa because I make little notes on it. Were you arrested there? Yeah, I was. Um, thrown in jail. Well, so what happened was um, when I was doing the Stanley Livingston book, I thought I couldn't possibly do it right unless I followed Stanley's path across Tanzania as he went to search for Livingston. And so he started Bagamoya, which is just off the coast from Dar es Salaam, and – uh, so we went there, and I, I hired a driver. I had two buddies with me, and we were following the route exactly. We stopped the first night um, outside the Makumi Game Park. We stayed in a, a guest lodge there. And then our driver was supposed to stay there, but what he did was he drove the three hours back to Dar es Salaam for the night, which we thought was really weird. And when he came back in the morning at dawn, um, he insisted that we not follow the exact route of Stanley Livingston, but instead we had south towards um, Zambia because he said there were bandits on the road. Um, when we got to the Zambian border in the town of Tanduma, um, you know, the people, the crowds were out in the street doing, you know, just congregating. 
and as we drove through the people had kind of spread apart kind of like in wayne's world when you you know when the people are playing hockey you know anyway um, our driver kept speeding up every time he saw police cars and he was very nervous and at one point he just started speeding up and he, he literally drove almost into a whole crowd of people but what happened was one woman was on the side of the road her daughter was on the other side her four-year-old daughter and she kept beckoning for the daughter to come over our driver couldn't stop in time and he literally hit the girl and she flew through the air and it was the most horrific thing you can imagine it was just felt like a, a nightmare and um we stopped the car to go help but as, as we went but they were so enraged that the people the whole mob descended on our vehicle started beating us with 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 clubs and all sorts of stuff so we got we got back in the car and fled and we literally drove five hours into the bush up the savannah on dirt roads not knowing if we were going to get thrown into the prison what was going to happen um, you know clearly we weren't driving but at the same time you know we were, would be implicated and we got to the next town which was the town of Sumbawanga. Uh there was a barricade there guys with automatic weapons and when our driver spoke to them he spoke to them in Swahili it turned out what he told them was that I was actually the one driving and he was, holy shit yeah so it took three days in the local jail to get that sorted out and you don't you know it's when I when I say local jail I'm not talking about you know, Mayberry, this is this, as squalid as you can imagine. Um, but they finally figured it out. And it turns out they didn't have the roadblock there because they were worried about the little girl. They thought somebody had stolen a car in Tunduma. Um, and the good news is the little girl did live. She was okay. Um, and they found whoever stole the car. And then as soon as we got, we went to, to Kigoma, we went to uh, Uiwi, which is where, you know, Stanley Livingston met. And then we got the hell out of Tanzania. That was that was not a good trip. Were you freaking out at this point? You know, I, I was <laughs> I was really calm and cool until I I got all the way back to Amsterdam and I called my wife for the first time since it had happened. Then I kind of lost it because it's you know at some point really when you look back on it we could have disappeared. You know we could have just been stuck there. We they could have never let us out, um, and nobody could have known we would have just gone away holy shit all right i kept you on the phone for 35 minutes a couple more minutes we're gonna hit a few quick questions sound good sure sounds good what book are you currently reading right now oh i'm reading i just finished um i just finished robert carroll's book about working Mm -hmm. but i'm reading this new book about bob larson the coach at who the guy who coached me to third place at the or silver medal at the Olympic Games back in 2004. It's all it's, it's all about the the history of distance coaching. How many times have you been out? It's different because you don't live in New York. I mean, like everyone's always on the trains and everything. How many times have you been out in public and saw someone reading one of your books? You know, it happens a lot on airplanes, and and I, I don't know the number, but the cool thing about it is whenever, or the weird thing is whenever they stop for whatever reason you know they get bored or or they have to close the book i always want to walk over and say why did you stop you know what what made what slowed it down what made you lose interest have you ever gone up to anyone and said i'm i'm the guy who wrote that book no never it's are you kidding me no then then you have to have a conversation and then it's going to get awkward at some point it's easier just to but i will say this i went to buy a new suit not just like three weeks ago and i walked in is a very young woman. She's very beautiful. You know, I was with my wife, and I, and I was, and my wife said, you know, he's he's looking for a new suit. And the woman said, oh, you're Martin. My mom reads all your books. I know exactly who you are. 
and then it's like whoa this is so weird and then she you know she picked out the perfect suit so it was pretty cool that's actually really cool have, have you ever started a book and for one reason or another stopped it stop writing it or yeah yeah like never didn't finish it didn't maybe if like oh i want to write a book on blank but there wasn't enough information or you didn't go through with it yeah i've got about four of those <laughs> <laughs> like right now i mean it it happened it's like i met sam shepherd the playwright before i became a writer i read where sam shepherd was asked the same question he said usually i'll know after about 15 pages whether it's worth going on and i thought that was kind of arbitrary but i have found that that's kind of the mark you get to about 15 pages when you know you're a few thousand words in and all of a sudden you know do i want to commit the next six months to this or do i just want to is it just not the story that i thought it was going to be some of these killing books are being made into like movies and docu-series do you have any involvement in any of that uh, a little bit i mean i'm just i'm still kind of the technical consultant because i'm the history guy um but i will say it was it's a little bit off putting like uh, you know it's one thing to kind of um let me backtrack a little bit so i was at the Springsteen concert at the sports arena, the night they closed the sports arena out here a few years ago, and I ran, I ran into Rob Lowe um, just next to our seat, and he had just done a book with Jillian Blake, who edited all the Killing books, um, so she told me what a good guy he was, so I just randomly walked up to him, and I just introduced myself and said I was the guy who wrote Killing Lincoln, or yeah, Killing Kennedy, and he looked at me like I was a crazy person, but then then we, then we it was cool, then we got everything good, but um so going, uh, what was the original question? That was, that was a good question. I had something else I wanted to say about that. Do you have any involvement in uh, any of the other oh, books? Yeah, but so like with, with Kennedy, you know, Kennedy's history, and it's, it's okay if he takes stuff. really kind of put me off is when we did Killing Jesus, the guy who wrote the script for Killing Jesus. You know, the Gospels are the Gospels, you know, and that's, we, I write history for a living. I don't write fiction. So if someone's going to do a script about our books, I've done thousands of hours of research and I can I can point to exactly how it should look and he the first thing he said to me was I have some interesting ideas about how we can do this story so he just basically took history and made it fiction which really really pissed me off mm -hmm. uh, but at some point you know there's nothing I can do that's not, that's not my gig ever get like anxiety while writing a book like worrying that you know you're putting your heart and soul into writing a book and maybe someone's going to come out with the book a little sooner than you or doing the same topic ever get anxiety about that oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's a thing that's a real thing i've there are there are at least three books that i have been dying to write and i have called my agent and said okay this is the next book and he's he's the head of the lit department at william morris endeavor and so he kind of he he knows enough people to poke around on three different occasions he's come back and said uh somebody else is, is either already doing this book or that book is going to be published next week or somebody just signed a contract to do that book. If you'd been one week faster, that'd be your book. So, oh, that sucks. Yeah, but you know what? I look at it. I used to kind of get upset about it and kind of get territorial because you know we all know what we write about best. And when somebody kind of encroaches in our territory, we we want to go fight them. But uh, but realistically, you know, it just I just need to find a better book. I need to find a better topic, something that people want to read about. And I always end up stumbling upon something even better. I know you wrote for Sports Illustrated. I was on your website. You mentioned something that you won the NCAA bracket tournament challenge. Are you a big sports guy? I'm a big sports guy. Yeah, I uh, really big sports. I started off as a sports writer. Mm -hmm. So um, and uh, you know, I, and I just went in this different road. Um, and you know, back when I used to cover the Tour de France back in the Lance Armstrong days. 
Um, I was I wasn't covering it for Sports Illustrated, but I would actually travel with Austin Murphy, who was the writer covering it for Sports Illustrated. So um, yeah, it's I and I wouldn't mind one of these days going back and just doing sports books, but at the same time, I'm not I'm not interested in doing your typical sports book. I'd rather do something that really, you know, is more than just a season or something. I'd like to do something that would just be a little bit different. What's your sports like? What's your favorite sports or favorite sports teams? Uh, well. Are you a Yankees or a Mets fan? You, oh, I got two. I got two seats from Yankee Stadium in my living room right now. That okay? That's cool. That's really cool. So I started off as a Dodger fan. So there we go. But uh, my kids growing up became Angel fans because they're closer. So I become an Angel fan. I'm a huge Mike Trout fan. I'm glad he did not leave Southern California. Um, uh, well, to... you, let me jump on you because obviously I wanted to play for the Yankees, but I'm glad he didn't because him, Otani out there. They're like you know they're one of the must-watch baseball teams at 10:30 at night here in New York. I'm watching Trout. It's fascinating to watch him in and out. So I'm glad he actually stayed out there also. Oh, you know, last night uh, Trout, Otani, Upton, and Calhoun all hit home runs. I mean, that's the, the Angels are. You watch the Angels are going to make the playoffs this year for the first time in a while. It's going to be amazing. And they're fun to watch. They're a fun, fun team. Yeah, you know, and you know, Mike Trout is a great reason just to read the box scores because he's such a great athlete, and you know, even when he's got a slump, he still finds a way to get on base. So. But I'm a Packer fan. I went to school back in the Midwest. I'm a big Packer fan. And well, uh, let, let me jump in on that. Did you see Brett Favre's uh, Instagram post today? No, I did not. What did it say? It, it, NFL, you know, I got an ESPN update. He tweeted or on Instagram that he's coming back for the 2020 season. And oh. then he got a million likes and then he deleted it. So no one knows if he's really coming back, if it was a prank, if someone hacked him. So that just happened around 45 minutes ago, right before we started podcasting. He, he uh, put that out there. No, that's crazy. He, I mean, I love Brett Favre. I mean, I love Aaron Rodgers, but Brett Favre, I mean, he if he did come back, he'd be foolish because I know the man still could probably play the game, but mm-hmm. he's, he's taking a few hits. You know, that I don't think it'd be good for him. And how about basketball? Are you a basketball guy or not really? You know, I got to tell you, I used to be a Laker fan, and they kind of disgust me right now. And I don't I don't want to become a Clipper fan because that's just being a front runner. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm certainly not. You know, my mom's from Boston, so I'm not, but I'm not ever going to become a Celtics fan. So... <laughs> So I'm kind of a man without a country here, but I'm just hoping the Lakers can get their act together and, and maybe I can rally behind them again. I'm not going to submit you to the misery that is a Knicks fan, so don't even think about becoming a Knicks fan. Don't even waste your time. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. You know what? My accountant is the guy who yelled at the Knicks owner about selling the team, and they, they, they're, they're trying to kick him out of the, uh, the garden. So I, I love that man. He's a hero here in New York. <laughs> <laughs> He's a, a fantastic guy. Uh, so my, my last notes on you, one topic you got dying to write about, you said you have a bunch. Uh, the other one was about memorabilia. You told me about that. I was going to ask you what's next, but that's still under wraps. Yeah. Um, oh, last thing, what, what's the paper Kenyan on your site? Because I, I only saw it just now as like we're finishing up. I went to your website. What exactly is that? I never clicked on it. So it's my blog, and it's um, and it, it started off what's you know it's stolen from George Plimpton, the, the great the sports writer back in the – the 60s, he spent a season with the, with the Detroit Lions, learning what it's like to be an NFL quarterback. And um, so, and you know, his he was kind of good at it, but he was basically got the shit kicked out of him. And so he called his book about that experience the Paper Lion. You know, the writer mm-hmm. who writes about the Lions. And so, when I began writing my blog, it was a little bit about endurance sports. It was a little bit about cycling, but you know, a lot about running. And the Kenyans obviously are the world's best runners you know, for the time being. So I called it the Paper Kenyon, but it's kind of morphed over the years from something that is only about running. Um, and I, it's just pretty much, 
whatever I feel like writing about on that given day. Realistically, if you go to my site and look at the blog, which I might do a post two or three times a month, or sometimes I'll go a year without writing one, but they're really kind of my warm-up for the writing day. If I kind of get stuck and I don't know how to start into what I'm working on, I'll actually go write something on, on the blog, and it kind of just it's like a warm-up exercise, and I put it online. That's actually really cool, and I hope I'm not wrong with this one. Plimpton, didn't he write The Curious Case of Sid Fitch? Yes, he did. Okay, yeah. good. I don't want to have to edit that out of the podcast if I sounded stupid. Yeah, good call. No, that was really good. That was That's a classic. The article itself is amazing, and then he wrote the book also. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And everybody thought it was real. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, just it was around three months ago, my wife and I, we just got married, and we went away, and I printed up the Sports Illustrated article, and she read it. She's like, okay. I'm like, watch. She goes, I, I need to know more about this guy. I'm like it's it's amazing. Did he make it? And then I showed her, you know, um, like the the first letter of each word was like "Happy April Fools." Or this is an April Fools joke. It was great. Yeah, that's funny. That's really funny. That's all right, do all the plugging. Plug in, plug your Twitter, your Instagram, your website, all that jazz. So on Facebook, I'm just you know Martin Dugard, M-A-R-T-I-N-D-U-G-A-R-D. Uh, Instagram, Instagram. I gotta look. Um, I'm looking at my. It's just Martin Dugard on Instagram, and then um, and it's at Martin J. Dugard on Twitter. So, and I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm pretty good on Twitter. I'm okay on Instagram. I'm pretty lame on Facebook. But Twitter Twitter is where I go to play. I'm actually going to tag you and follow you right now on Twitter. And I listen, I mean this. I'm uh, very, very lucky that I get all these amazing guests on my show. You're really one of my top three favorite authors I've ever had. And I, I completely geeked out. Like this morning, I actually had on the former head of NASA for eight years. He called in. And at work, everyone's like, you interviewed a dude from NASA? I'm like, bro, Martin Dugard's coming on tonight. Like, I'm legit fanboying out now. Like, I sat across some athletes and authors. And just to have you on the phone, man, is just an absolute blast, man. I really appreciate you calling in. Dude, that's really cool. I, seriously, I appreciate that so much. It's, uh, like I said before, you know, writers, we don't, we don't get this kind of love very often. We're, we're solitary guys, so it's nice to get uh, the chance to, to talk about what I do. And listen, here's the deal. So in my little – I have a studio, and I actually do it from a private bar, but I have – I don't collect memorabilia, but every guest on my show, like I said, whatever they do in their profession, I'm going to send you a book or something or something cool, and you got to sign it for me so I can hang it up in here, okay? You got it. You got it. So, Martin, uh, an absolute blast, my friend. I, I couldn't thank you enough. This made my entire night. <laughs> hey, that was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Martin, thank you so much, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Mike. Have a great night. Thanks, brother. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.